Today I'm talking to Ryan Abernathy. He's a climate scientist and startup founder working on building better tools to process large amounts of scientific data. We go pretty deep into how some of the modern computing for scientific data is done today, the issues that Ryan sees, and what he's building to solve some of those issues, having his company, Earthmover. If you've listened to this podcast before, you might have picked up on the fact that on top of nerding about the tools that we use today to build maps, I also like a good funding and business model conversation, and this time is no exception. Ryan having an academic background, we go over the differences in funding a project through grants to bootstrapping and taking investments. This episode is sponsored by Kermap. They're behind Nimbo, a very easy to use platform showing beautiful cloud-free composites of satellite images over time around the world. I talk a lot about satellite images on this podcast and that's probably no surprise, but I also often wanna show people, especially those around me who aren't as familiar with satellite images, what they look like, and maybe more importantly, some specific changes over time. Nimbo is one of the easiest and simplest platforms out there to do this. Anyone can really just use it. In just a few clicks, you can make a render and a time series animation and easily compare images over time. They make monthly mosaics, stitching Sentinel-2 optical images together, creating a catalog over time that you can easily explore. You can log in at maps.nimbo.earth for free and just start browsing around, comparing images over time and just exploring the world, either in 2D or in 3D with elevations and mountains. I do want to highlight this. It is really easy to use. In a couple of clicks, you can export a GIF of change over time or individual images. They've made the UI incredibly simple. So I recommend you just go ahead and take a look for yourself at maps.nimbo.earth or send it over to someone who you've been trying to explain what the heck satellite images are as anyone can really easily use this. This is, in my opinion, the biggest benefit of Nimbo. So head over to maps.nimbo.earth to try it out for yourself. And thank you to Kermap for sponsoring this episode. What I like doing is asking people how they would describe themselves. So I'm quite curious, how would you describe yourself? It's easy in a sense, like I really identify as a scientist. I'm a physical oceanographer and a climate scientist. I've just spent too long of my professional career thinking about the, the ocean every day to kind of stop identifying that way. Uh, but Right now, I am a startup founder uh, at a company called Earthmover that's building data infrastructure for uh, scientific data in the cloud. And so that's the hat I'm wearing most of the time. But I kind of try to always bring that perspective of, you know, what are the what are the big science questions? How can science uh, help solve problems on Earth um, to, to the work I'm doing? How does one go from being an oceanographer scientist to starting a startup, especially in data infrastructure? It's a reasonable question. People might not realize just how data intensive the modern study of oceanography is. And, uh, you know, so to explain that, I want to like explain the kind of oceanography I do, which we call physical oceanography. So I think when most people hear oceanography, they think, you know, marine biology and, and whales and coral and stuff like that. Um, but physical oceanography is, is physics of the ocean. What we're trying to understand in physical oceanography is, you know, the currents, the, the temperature, the circulation. And physical oceanography is a really important part of climate science because the ocean um, is really like this huge heat reservoir for the entire climate system. So the ocean is capable of storing so much heat, um, storing other stuff as well, like carbon, nutrients. So it's a key part of um, that Earth system. Um, so the way we, you know, study physical oceanography, of course, there's a lot of field work and observations, folks going out in boats. And, you know, that's really the hardcore sort of traditional way of observing the ocean. Of course, Technology is changing things very rapidly. So now there's a lot of autonomous platforms, sensors, and robots out there floating around. Um, and then, of course, more relevant to your uh, your listeners here is remote sensing, right? We we measure the ocean from space using satellites. And that's what a lot of my research has involved. Uh, so um, I worked on 
just to be specific, like I'm a member of the NASA SWAT science team, surface water and ocean topography. It's a new mission joint with Kness just launched a new um, altimetry instrument um, that's measuring ocean sea surface height variations. And so these sources of information are always increasing. They're, the resolution, the temporal and spatial resolution of ocean measurements is always increasing. And that is just driving this need to work with data at scale. The basic outline of how I sort of made this transition is that in our research, we were feeling really overwhelmed with the amount of data that we wanted to work with in order to just do science. Started pivoting towards working on software and data infrastructure, you know, tooling to to make that more feasible, and that just kind of snowballed and took on a, a life of its own, um, and now has sort of taken over my my career. But in a way, if we're successful with what we're doing at at Earthmover, um, uh, and you know, in, in the Pangeo community more broadly, um, that means that the sort of research that we were trying to do gets way way easier, not just for us but for everyone. And that unlocks all kinds of possibilities in terms of just basic research, but also climate change, adaptation, and mitigation work. So that's that's what really motivates me. At its core, it seems like you you had a, a problem, a topic of study that you were looking into, and there was some frustration around the tooling to manipulate some of that data. You mentioned Pangeo. So that's a, a set of open source tools. Um, to try to manipulate a lot of this scientific data. So um, climate or not, uh, it's things like Dask, X-Array, like these tools that help manipulate at a very large scale um, a lot of data. Uh, and you've been involved in that like from very, very early on. Um, but these are open source tools. Why go start a company, especially in the, in the climate uh, aspect you've mentioned, uh, a lot of uh, public institutions uh, like NASA, all of this is public. Usually, it's it's open source. Why go start a company to build uh, tools when there's some open source? I think a key, you know, part of this equation is the scale of the data that we're trying to work with, and the the sort of infrastructure side. Where where are we actually going to run our data analysis? Where are we going to store our data? And uh, increasingly, the the answer to that is in the cloud. What we're doing at Earthmover is very much uh, tied to cloud computing. What we learned, you know, during the the Pangeo project is that um, the cloud has an enormous potential uh, for really just unlocking all of this amazing capability um, for even, say, very small, you know, new organizations to do really large scale data analytics and processing. And that's that's totally transformative, right? Before cloud, it used to be that if an institution or an organization or company wanted to like do really ambitious data intensive earth system science, they basically needed like a supercomputer, right? They needed a massive cluster, you know, in their basement or they needed to be part of a national lab like a US DOE lab or, you know, something like that. Those groups, of course, have that sort of infrastructure and they're able to do really cool things, but those capabilities aren't accessible to everyone. So they're not accessible to you know small startups that are just getting started. They're not accessible to, by and large, to scientists in the developing world, the place where climate change impacts are going to be the most um, you know severe. They're not ac- accessible to you know uh, underprivileged uh, institutions who don't have you know proper resources, and so. You know, when we got into cloud, you know, our, our story of getting into cloud in Pangeo is, is is pretty interesting. So we wrote our first grant proposal to fund some of the Pangeo work back in 2017, and we originally in that in that budget we put in like a couple hundred thousand dollars to like buy a bunch of servers because we were going to work with all this data, right? And um, we were going to use all the tools you mentioned, you know you know X-ray and Dask and stuff on these servers to process data. Uh, and the NSF, you know, they, they told us they wanted to fund our, fund our proposal, proposal, but they, we had to trim the budget a little bit. So they asked us to cut something out of the budget. And uh, at the time, the NSF was running this um, program called Big Data, uh, which was basically this partnership with the three big cloud providers, uh, AWS, Google Cloud, and Microsoft Azure. And they were just giving out cloud credits. Um, who's, sorry, let me. Who is NFS, by the way? NSF. Sorry, sorry uh, that's, NSF. Uh, that's that's just me uh, assuming everyone. NSF is the U.S. National Science Foundation. 
Okay. So the NSF is the main funder of ocean and climate research um, in certainly within academic institutions. And right. within, on the U.S. side, there's also NASA funds a lot of stuff, but almost always linked with satellites. And NOAA funds a lot of stuff, but mostly, again, linked with specific NOAA program objectives. So NASA is really, or NSF, sorry, is really funding the sort of fundamental basic research. So anyway, we, we basically said, okay, we'll trim, we'll, we'll, we won't buy all these servers. Give us 100K worth of Google Cloud credits instead. Um, and that was awesome. Um, it was this playground uh, that um, uh, we had to just try out cloud computing and see what we could make happen. And uh, that was uh, incredibly exciting. And we learned a lot of cool stuff. We learned about how, how to format data to be really efficiently accessible in, in cloud object storage. We learned about how to leverage things like, you know, elastic scaling of compute to spin up and spin down these massive jobs really quickly and process, you know, many terabytes of data for just like a few dollars, right? Like really, really exciting, fun stuff. And we also just spent a ton of time doing like DevOps work. You know, DevOps is like the term given to like the area of, um, you know, uh, software engineering that involves like building and maintaining and testing, you know, deploying cloud infrastructure systems, you know, and this is like a bunch of, you know, oceanographers and hydrologists, like, you know, writing helm charts and like running Kubernetes clusters and, you know, like, and it was really, while it was, the potential was huge, it was really time consuming to sort of set up and deploy that infrastructure. And so, Basically, the way I ended up feeling after working on this for a couple of years is like cloud has a huge amount of potential, but just turning someone loose on, say, like the AWS console and being like, all right, like go, go cloud now, like here's a bunch of software you can run in the cloud, like it it's, it's falls so, sh so short of what we really need to like democratize that that capability. And the cloud providers themselves aren't really offering a lot of higher level services that are targeted towards earth system data or, or geospatial data. They, you know, they offer a lot of higher, higher level services that are targeted more towards, you know, business, typical business applications, like, you know, databases and business intelligence tools and, and things like that. But by and large, like this area that, you know, we're in of earth system science and maybe geospatial more broadly is there's just like a little bit niche. It's there's not a lot specifically there, and so um, the goal with Earthmover is to really build something at that services layer, right? Uh, that you can just go easily spin up, you know, and start using as a sort of foundation to build uh, whatever you want in the cloud. Um, and you know, our goal is, is really to just have actually like a service like that, like just a really easy to use turnkey system that can save folks all of that sort of pain and, and sort of months of sort of custom designing and building, you know, engineering your own sort of data system in the cloud um, and being able to just get going in, in day one. And we didn't really know how to deliver that experience as just like putting out a bunch of software for, you know, for people to just download and use really needed to be built as a product. Uh, and so that's what we're doing today. Um, and we're pretty excited about it and happy to go into, you know, more detail about what we're building. I'm, I'm curious about that last thing that you mentioned, building not just a software tool, but a product. And I'm guessing that's hinting as to why you want to have a company rather than this being a project that can be funded through grants for having a new open source. Um, can you go in a little bit more detail as to why that is? And what does that look like maybe with some examples, like concretely? Yeah. Um, so the question is why, why build a product period? Yeah. Why, why do you see the solution to that being a product rather than um, maybe with big quotes, just a, a piece of software, like an open source piece of software, like something like a, another czar or Dask or, or something like that? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And the product experience we are trying to deliver with, um, with Earthmover, um, we're, we're building this platform called Array Lake, which is a, essentially a data lake platform for multi-dimensional array data, the sort of data that's typically found in Earth system science. Um, that experience like spans so many different 
modalities, right? So there's like a web experience and there's like a CLI and there's a sort of a Python SDK. Um, there's like all of this backend stuff that needs to just be up and running all the time for that to work. Um, you know, there's there's databases, there's APIs, there's, you know, front end stuff. So, you know, if I look at our platform today, like what what would it take to, you know, to self-host that? You know, the amount of like work that would be required to like someone else to deploy and manage our service. I just don't feel like it would provide a lot of value um, to our our users and our customers to to just give them all this stuff and then be like, you know, we we spend a lot of time like trying to fine tune the operations of it. And our whole goal is to like make that our problem and and not the customer's problem. So they don't have to worry about, you know, provisioning servers and, uh, you know, you know, scaling, auto scaling, you know, gateways or, or, or whatever. And this is essentially the trade-off we all make whenever we use the cloud. We've decided that there's a certain category of, of work that um, is not a good use of our time. I'm from the pre-cloud era. Like I've built servers, I've racked servers, you know, like I've installed Linux on bare metal. By and large, in, you know, most organizations don't don't decide to do that today because they just made a trade off. You know, sort of a, 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 a cost effectiveness analysis of that and realize, yeah, like for now it makes sense. Let's let AWS do that for us. It's it's undifferentiated, undifferentiated heavy lifting. Can you walk me through at a at a high level what the uh, array lake looks like? So you you mentioned about like the problem, which I think is a very real one. Like you. You are in, let's say, in geospatial very broadly. Like you have a set of ex expertise in either remote sensing or maybe like agriculture or forestry, like these very scientific aspects. And then there's the computing hurdle that comes along, which is a very different sets of skills. So, what does that solution look like? I think it's important to start from like what is the status quo today? What do people do? who want to work with Earth system data in the cloud. There's two broad categories of solutions that they can use. I'm talking about like where to actually store that data. And my, my assumption here is that like the, the, the user in this scenario is any type of organization. It can be a company, it can be a university, it can be a government that has a sort of body of data that they want to sort of own and control and then do analytics on top of. Um, whether that's research or whether that's serving up a live product or um, you know uh, whatever it may be, that that's a, that's effectively their their data lake, and we see this pattern repeated across all kinds of different organizations of shapes and sizes, and or uh, an, an organization sort of owns and has some data. And by the way, even if that data are ostensibly public and already available, what we see over and over is organizations are replicating that data in order to have it under their control. So, you know, a perfect example uh, of that is like, say, you want weather data from uh, the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasting, ECMWRF. You maybe want ERA-5, the, the um, historical weather reanalysis, um, one of the most widely used data sets in the world. Now, of, I guess you could say, well, we we won't even store that data. We can just get it from ECMWF whenever we need it. Let's just download it on demand whenever our uh, business process requires that data. Well, the problem is that the way that data is distributed is really from an archival point of view and not from an analysis or computation point of view. So you can download those files, but you're going to be waiting hours or in some cases days to actually complete those downloads, you're going to get them into a format that's not necessarily optimized for uh, analytics. And so just about all organizations that are working on a, in a serious operational way with data are, are holding data, even if it's public data, they're holding their own copy of it that's, you know, optimized for their use case and their, their analytics pipeline. I guess, do you, I don't know, you, you work at a company that has data, like, do you, do you see this Type oh, of yeah. pattern in Europe. <laughs> this from, sounds from very familiar. Your point of view, right? Um, and I think go, I go think ahead. this is even more the case for climate data, which I'm not as familiar with. And this is something I want to touch on a little bit later. Um, I think in the remote sensing world, it's been a little bit better. So if you want um, the the equivalents, might be getting 
things like Landsat or, or Copernicus, which companies have put the effort into making a lot easier to access. So we wouldn't be doing that. We would be making derived products from it. So an example of that is it's probably very easy to get well, no, it is very easy to get individual tiles of satellite images. But if you want, especially for optical images, if you want a cloud-free mosaic, so you want the last month without clouds, that's a derived product, basically. It's not the raw data that the satellite took. That is something that I think most people will make, or there is one out there, but it's not findable. Uh, and that's another problem. It's like someone has put it out there, on an S3 buckets uh, or, you know, linked to a project on GitHub, but it's not very findable. That's kind of what I see today. Absolutely. And even if there is a third party producer who's made that, we see a lot of organizations that are essentially hesitant to tr trust those third party copies if they don't fully understand the provenance and they don't understand the reliability guarantee around that. Um, and here, research and, and sort of business use cases differ, because if it's, if it's just a researcher at a university who wants something to get a paper, they probably, what, they'll use whatever they can find. If it's, say, a, a hedge fund that's using this data to guide their trading strategies, um, and they're making millions of dollars a week off of this data, it's, it's a no-brainer for them to just co exercise complete control over the entire data pipeline. So, you know, there, there's a spectrum. And, and we, we got a big lesson recently in the sort of reliability of these third-party providers. I don't know if you, you, you're even aware of this, but we were talking about ERA-5, the, the, the weather data set from ECMWF. Well, there has been a, a, a copy in the cloud, a sort of very limited subset, but that has been maintained in AWS. And a, f a few weeks ago, it just got shut off. It just the, the, the company that was maintaining that, which is neither AWS nor ECMWF, but some third-party processor, just decided, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. It doesn't make sense for us. And that the whole bucket just went away, like, overnight. Um, and so, you know, like, I think that's a real, I don't know, there's some lesson there. Anyway, I want to get back to I, what, what I was starting with was, like, the um, the status quo. So what do people do? So they want they need a data lake. Um, there's basically two options, that broad categories of options that folks have. Option one is to use an existing database or data warehouse or data lakehouse type solution to store the data in. Um, and there I'm talking about something like a data warehouse like Snowflake or a platform like Databricks. In, you know, in Google Cloud, you have BigQuery, you have Redshift, like data warehouses. It, for non-Earth system data, for just typical business data, like this is what companies do with the data that they want to have accessible to analytics. They put it into an analytical database, uh, usually called like an OLAP, you know, uh, online analytical processing database, uh, Snowflake being the biggest example. And these are pretty successful products. They're really useful. Once you get, once you land your data in the data warehouse, people can just like write queries against that data. They're really fast to deliver. Like it's a central source of truth for the whole organization. Um, they, they, they like it. These are successful um, type of thing, a successful product category. We don't really see folks using that for Earth system data very much. There's there's a few who do, and um, there's there's good reasons to to think about that trade off. The reason they don't is that the data model generally doesn't fit Earth system data, particularly on the multi dimensional array or raster side. Um, if you have if you're talking about vector data, you know points, geometries, etc. Most of those platforms have a decent solution for geospatial vector data, but particularly on the climate and earth system and weather data side, we're talking about massive multidimensional arrays, like literally petabyte scales of like two, three, four, five dimensional arrays that represent fields, you know, like temperature, precipitation, you know, modeled on this grid on the globe. So you, it, it's really, really hard to shoehorn that data model into a like sort of standard relational database, uh, um, solution. So what most people do instead is they put their data in cloud object storage, like AWS S3, Google Cloud Storage, Azure Blob Storage. This is like so ubiquitous that people don't even really question it. But like, you know, that's what, yeah, that's what people do. They dump all these data files into cloud object storage. And cloud object storage is basically a big key value database, 
right? It's like you, you, you identify your data by some key, some sort of path, and then you put bytes in and you get bytes out. And it's on one hand, it's very amazing. It's, it's really scalable and, um, you know, uh, simple and e easy to use and pretty cost effective for storing that data. On the other hand, it knows nothing about what data you're putting into it. So compared to that data warehouse, which understands, okay, here's a schema for this table and here's, you know, here's the data types and, you know, uh, you know, the, the service itself knows nothing about your data and therefore can do nothing with your data other than give you back the bytes that you asked for. And so our basic sort of product vision in Earthmover is that there needs to be a sort of higher level service for storing data uh, that understands this data model, this multidimensional array data model, and that is kind of as easy and convenient to use as like those sort of data warehouse type products, but that is sort of made for this category of data. The, the reason why like that searchable aspect is important is because you might have, and, and like this is more of a question, but let's take uh, the Aero 5 like climate model or weather model. You don't necessarily want to have the whole world all the time. Maybe you care about like one part of the world or one country or just the precipitation and you want to be able to query that a lot faster without having to get the entire thing. And right now in cloud storage, uh, mostly you can't do that. You can like one file is one file. You can't retrieve a, a portion. Is that kind of the main problem? Yes. I would say that a big goal throughout, you know, my work both before and now during Earthmover is to get us to move away from having to think about files as like the unit of data. Got it. Um, and that's definitely the case if you're using, say, that 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 sort of analytical database, that Snowflake. You don't think about the files at all. You're like, okay, here's my table. It's got the following columns, and I'm going to write a query to get back the data I want. And you never once think about like, well, how are they storing it? Like, what what file format do they use? Um, now, there are other technologies, like you can use uh, Databricks, and you can use Delta Lake, and you can use Apache Iceberg, and you can achieve actually that same experience without having to hide that in their open file formats and open table formats that achieve the same thing. Um, now, over on the um, Earth System side, the standard way to distribute data is, as you said, like, we'll, we'll, we'll just put out a bunch of TIFFs for, you know, imagery data or in, you know, for Earth System data, it would be NetCDF files. For weather data, it would be GRIB files. And the data provider is essentially making some choice about how to partition up this massive data set in terms of files. And they'll say, okay, we'll make one file per day and one file per variable. And, like, from then on, everyone who uses that data is kind of constrained by that choice for how they're going to query the data. And um, we made a big breakthrough moving away from this in Pangeo um, by adopting uh, storage formats that abstract over the files and give us something that looks a little bit more like a database. And we've done that mostly through this file format, I'm hesitant to call it a file format, uh, called ZAR. Right? So ZAR is an array storage format that actually spreads data over many different files. In that sense, it's a little bit more like a database. You can fill up ZAR data with as much data you, as you want. You know, you, it, it, the reason you can't do this with regular files is like you wouldn't want to make a file that's like one petabyte in size. It would become like totally unwieldy um, and most tooling wouldn't work with it. So ZAR is a way of you know, taking very large multidimensional array spaces, chunking them up into, you know, individual objects for storage, um, and then kind of hiding all of the, that details from the user so that the user can then just go open up the data set and query it in a much more natural way that aligns with their mental model. And so particularly when you bring X-Array, the software package for you know analytics together with ZAR, this really great user experience where you can open up this you know data cube, if you like to call it that, you can see multiple different spatial, temporal dimensions. Uh, you know, do a selection, do processing, write very high-level code where you're not thinking about files, and then just you know dispatch that code to be executed and get back your result. And so it's moving towards more of that analytical database-style user experience than for each file in my thousand files do this, this very imperative sort of file-based processing. 
Um, and so that's the user experience that we are going towards is just pr providing that really high level uh, intuitive view into the data. And just to finally you know, kind of wrap up this very long answer to your question, Array Lake you can think of as a database built on this czar data model um, that allows you to really easily you know, create, manage, modify, extend, uh, and in particular version control these large multidimensional array spaces um, and uh, just have a you know beautiful data catalog you can go log into and see oh here's all of my data sets there the, here's their their shape and the, the variables they hold and and start you know just thinking about the the data um, from a physical modeling point of view rather than the, from the point of view of files. So is that the I was going to ask like why not just use Czar and I think you answered that by basically if I understand correctly it improves upon it it's it's like one layer above so first of all i i wouldn't say i, I would encourage people to use czar like czar is a great place to start and we consider czar and x-ray both important parts of our product experience like as a company like we invest a lot of time in the maintenance and development of both of those software tools what we replace for our customers is taking is is essentially that object store direct interaction with the object storage so if you're using array lake you can still keep using X-Ray, keep using Czar, but instead of pointing those tools at S3, you point it at ArrayLake. And you just start storing the data in ArrayLake, and then you get a bunch more stuff for free that's really hard to do by just a file format alone. One is like a really nice data catalog that you can search and browse in the web, um, which is a piece of the user experience that's really missing from just dumping data into, into S3. The other is a sort of transaction and version control mechanism. And this sort of addresses, in a way, some of the limitations of using a format like Czar or really any, any file format that spans multiple files in object storage. Uh, and it has to do with the fact that like, when you have multiple different uh, users that are accessing the same data at the same time, particularly if they're, some of these, those people are trying to write the data or update the data, um, uh, the object store itself doesn't offer the necessary sort of consistency and transaction primitives to do that safely. Um, when you make a database, when you have a database, you have like an acid transaction, right? Like you, 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 you commit some updates or you don't, uh, and it either succeeds or fails. Um, and either way, it, there's sort of guarantees around the correctness of the state of the data at any one time. Whereas if you're just putting czar directly in object storage, it's actually remarkably easy to corrupt um, and and uh, find your data in a uh, uh, useless state. Um, and that's not so much a flaw of the format as it is of the device that you're storing it in, which is the object store, which doesn't offer the necessary transaction uh, mechanisms to make that update safe. So we've created this additional layer um, that allows you to keep that data model, also keep storing the data in object storage, by the way. Like, it's not as if we have our own servers or something like that. It's still in uh, S3, but have that additional safety um, around how the data are updated, which also then gives you the ability to time travel within your data to previous uh, states. One of the questions I'm, I'm curious to ask is around friction of onboarding new people or or selling this idea this vision to other people and the reason i ask that is because uh, while you know computer science and remote sensing and technology like moves pretty fast people are always a bit hesitant to change right especially when you say there's going to be this new way of doing things like cloud uh, storage is not perfect but at least people understand how it works. Uh, maybe my cloud-optimized GeoTIFF isn't great, but I understand how it works. I know the limitations behind it. I'm familiar with it. I can download it on my computer and open it up and I can see how it works. And I, I understand that. I'm curious how you've navigated some of that friction, if you've seen some of it. And uh, also like this idea of control and of understanding the data that, that you're working with compared to 
what feels like going one level of abstraction higher up? You know, I think my co-founders, Joe Hammond and I, are really lucky to have gotten into this place where we're kind of on the edge of what's possible in cloud technology. And absolutely, we are building something that is new. There's not a lot of precedent for this type of service. And um, there are definitely people who are more or less conservative about their approach to adopting new technology. We're super lucky to have found some great early customers who are very eager to adopt new technology, particularly when it's solving core business problems for them. And, you know, as a seed stage startup, we're not so much concerned right now with, you know, I mean, I'm surely familiar with like sort of the adoption curve, right? Like you've got early adopters and you've got the middle of the pack. Uh, and and then you've got sort of the, the I don't know, whoever's at the end, the Luddites or, or whoever, you know, <laughs> folks who are still, you know, on, on prem or something like that. Um, so we're very much focused on making those early adopters super happy right now um, and iterating with them to improve the product. I mean, this is very new. This is a, a year old. Um, and we're very happy to have, a, a, you know, number of, you know, customers who have really been willing to engage with this and, um, uh, you know, give us feedback. Um, and we're kind of just at the beginning of, of the journey, right? Um, uh, in particular, you know, we've learned a lot over the past year about what are the really deep pain points that these teams are facing when trying to build uh, these operational systems around or system data. And you sort of touched on this a little bit in one of your comments. You know, you mentioned uh, for geospatial data, it's easy to get like a, an individual scene. But what if you want to, you know, have, a, say, a cloud-free mosaic? The, the next step beyond that is almost everyone that we talk to who's working with time series, uh, remote sensing data is interested in the time series dimension of it, how things are changing over time. And in that case, the traditional layout of data, the traditional way data is distributed, which is like as an image, you know, which then has to get stacked um, one on top of another. This leads to this problem that we are now calling the pancake problem, right? So uh, the pancake problem happens when you build these data cubes by stacking, you know, one individual scene on top of another. Um, and then you want to just pull out a time series from a single point, right? And when the data are generated and stored that way, that's extremely, extremely costly and slow compared to, say, the cost of just pulling out a slice uh, to make a map at one particular time. The asymmetry in the cost is, is that, or thousands, right, order of magnitude. You can generally pull out that, that map view in, you know, 100 milliseconds or less from most reasonable storage formats. But to pull out that time series can take minutes or hours, even depending on the size of the data set. And so many people, for so many people, the actual value in the data is in the time dimension, because um, th that's where you do things like modeling and forecasting and understanding sort of dynamical changes over time. Um, and so that's where our, our focus is really going, is towards um, trying to optimize this problem of working fluently with time series uh, along the time dimension from data that originate, uh, that are co contiguously in space. This is maybe taking a bit of a step back, but one of the interesting things that you've told me before, and I, I really wanted to dive into that a little bit more, is this difference between climate science and, and geospatial. Um, and you mentioned that you were quite surprised when you started coming in more onto the geospatial side, that things were a little bit different. You You weren't as used to it. I think one thing you told me was that uh, you did your whole PhD with the assumption that the earth is just a sphere and you talk to anybody who does, uh, you know, mapping at a pretty low level, there's elevation models and trying to map terrain is a really big problem. So for a lot of people that, that is, uh, their whole work is basically trying to map that. So these, these are very quite different worlds, but it seems like you had a few more thoughts on that. Sure. Well, let me just correct. Like, I didn't actually mean to say that I think the earth was a flat sphere, like certainly <laughs> understand the importance of, um, you know, uh, you know, elevation changes. And this yeah. is huge in oceanography, right? The depth of the ocean right. would be along that dimension. But what I was, what I didn't 
um, spend any time thinking about was say, like the ellipsoid, right? Um, the, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, okay. The, My bad. The, um, the the coordinate reference system. Yeah. And so let let me just back up and explain. Sort of, I I find myself often at this intersection between sort of climate science and geospatial. Um, and I'm coming from the climate science side. So I have a, I have a PhD in climate physics and chemistry from MIT. Um, that's how I was trained. And yeah, we learned a lot of really cool, hard stuff about r- atmospheric radiation and, uh, you know, fluid dynamics and numerical modeling of on the sphere. Um, but what we didn't learn any of was like GIS stuff. Right. Like we didn't really learn the traditional GIS curriculum of like vector and raster and, you know, CRS and transforming from this projection to that projection. Or if we did, it was just like the very, very last stage of whatever we were. We have to make a map now for our paper. So, like, let's figure out how to put this data on a on a map somehow and just copy and paste some code, you know, to do that. And, and move on with it, right? And from the point of view of Earth system scientists, I think the hard parts of this field are really around sort of the core scientific aspects. Like for me, it, it's like understanding turbulence, like how the ocean, you know, these nonlinear, nonlinear interactions, you know, among currents and eddies that produce, you know, circulation and transport heat and carbon. Like that was like my core scientific problem I was interested in. And, you know, there's so many different domains of earth system science, you know, from air quality and, you know, air, air pollution to, you know, land surface hydrology, looking at, you know, floods and droughts. And I mean, just any number of problems that folks do literally just do PhDs in, and they're mostly focusing on the sort of physics, chemistry, or biology of that problem. But then what we what we see now it's actually a really exciting time in climate science where climate science is being brought to bear on really sort of real world problems right like we see a real growing interest in climate resilience climate adaptation um among governments there's a lot of new companies out there who are looking at climate adaptation and climate resilience and in general, that that involves intersecting the physical and chemical, biological climate world with the human world, right? Where people live and there's buildings and political boundaries and roads and dams and things like that. And of course, that's where GIS and geospatial, you know, the more mainstream geospatial, you know, technology live. And yeah, I think there's a there there can be a gap of understanding on on both sides about like what what is like the the, the problem and you know I think there's certainly plenty of ignorance on the side of the, sort of the more large scale global climate about yeah like just how do you actually find a point on the Earth like exactly right uh, you mentioned the the spherical Earth but like this is not a a joke like just about all global climate models make the quite reasonable for that problem assumption that the earth is spherical um just because like those ellipsoidal effects don't really matter for trying to model the global scale climate um and they just make it a lot more complicated um numerically and so you know then but those models are also like not really reality like in a way like they are now living in some you know they're, they're reality but they're 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 a little different from reality. Another example is like a lot of climate models will just like skip leap years because they're complicated. Like, because, the, the, like, you know, writing the model code to like make each year a different length is actually a pain that a lot of modeling centers just skip. Um, and so like the same thing with the time dimension. Like, so, but then we actually have to map up, you know, the the climate model space and time to the real world space and time. and there's been some um, uh, really cool research showing uh, how difficult it can actually be if, if you don't get precise about your, say, the, the CRS of the climate model to, to do local, you know, re- local climate impacts work. You can really miss the importance of ma- the location of major features like cities. You can align them incorrectly. So, you know, in general, it's a problem that gets bigger as more important as you go to smaller and smaller scales. 
Um, so I'm still learning a lot about geospatial. Um, you know, like I, there's, there's tons of complexity there that I, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm still absorbing and, 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 and understanding, but that's also why, you know, this, this is fun for me because I get to learn sort of new stuff all the time. I didn't study any of this either. I studied aerospace mechanical engineering. And so this idea of assumptions and simplifications to be able to model things because you have hard limits on like what you're like, how complex you can model things for uh, fluid mechanics. Um, like that brings up a few memories. So I, I haven't worked on the uh, on the climate side, but just modeling the airflow around a, a wing or like how the pressure of gases changes inside an engine. Like you have to make some assumptions around like what you're modeling and what has impacts or not. I just find that really interesting to decipher what are the different assumptions at different levels that certain sciences do and others don't. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I just find that very interesting. It's very interesting and also very, very timely because I mean, we're all modelers now, Every, like people using AI, people are using AI all the time, right? It's, it's growing everywhere. And like, you're, you're fundamentally, you're, you're building models, like you're, you're trying to predict something, right? And that is a model. It, it, in many cases, you're way less explicit about what the assumptions are, you maybe you might not even really know. Um, but I do think that the as sort of geospatial moves into this sort of predictive modeling domain, um, it is, there's a lot of useful ideas from um, Earth system modeling that would be useful to disseminate ideas about like how you construct grids in particular, like uh, how you grid up the earth um, is really, really important. And it's it, the requirements there are very different than if you're just trying to take pictures of the earth, right? Like, um, you know, uh, in, in, in simulations, we really think about grid cells, right? And we're, we're, we think about their connectivity and how they are connected to their neighboring grid cells. And what are the sort of various properties of these grid cells and are they favorable to solving the type of equations that we want to solve and so on one hand there is you know this ignorance or this sort of just i don't want to call it ignorance but just like this simplification about the earth's geometry on the other hand there's a much more sophisticated question of how we actually discretize up the the earth we live on and and in a in a really precise and useful way i think that in fairness, like a lot of that comes from limited resources, like mostly computing. Like you have to, if, you, if you're trying to model, like especially something like the weather and how it changes over time, you, yeah, maybe modeling exactly where every building is, isn't going to have an impact at the scale that we're going in. And so because we have limited resources, like the, the, those assumptions make sense as well. I think like there are they're fun to talk about, but but they're a necessity as well to, to be able to have these macro trends. I mean, I wonder if your your listeners know just how coarse resolution most climate models are, right? You know, I mean, like I don't. <laughs> they're extremely coarse spatially. So, sort of the standard CMIP six climate models have one degree spatial resolution, so like hundred ten kilometer grid cells, right? That's that's like. And, and, and that scale is just why, like, so many of these details, like, about CRS and, you know, ellipsoids and stuff don't don't really matter um, because they're context. just so big. They're so it, – it's, it's just so fuzzy the way we're, we're looking at, at the world. Now, climate models are becoming higher resolution. So a, a really high-resolution global coupled climate model today could have 10-kilometer, you know, resolution grid scales. Uh, well, ten, I mean, 10 kilometers still is nothing compared to remote sensing resolutions. I mean, you hear t people talking about 10 centimeter, you know, imagery, right? Like we're, we're many, many orders of magnitude still away from that. And so what has to happen if you want to intersect climate data or even weather, I mean, weather data is not, it's higher resolution, but not that much higher resolution, you know, um, uh, is you have to do this thing called downscaling, right? Um, where you, you know, and there's this whole body of, of work on, you know, taking uh, this coarse resolution representation of the Earth um, uh, that's in a climate model and downscaling it, yeah, to that sort of, you know, 90 meter Landsat, you know, um, resolution. And so taking, like, say, the predicted temperature field and um, right. 
and so going interpolating. Uh, yeah, in interpolating. Them. I mean, they're like interpolation is the is this is the sort of most naive way to do it, right? Um, and the more sophisticated way to do it is to have a model. And so, for example, if you're doing temperature and you're trying to downscale it, well, the most obvious thing you want to factor in is the elevation, right? Because you know, first order, like elevation is going to strongly influence a, a, a temperature. It's a, it's, a, it's a very mathematical relationship. Then there's other things you could bring to bear in that model. You could, you could throw some AI in there. You could so, throw a physical model in there to help you do that downscaling. We actually see a lot of work going on in downscaling right now. And I've formed the opinion that, you know, just like we have these sort of canonical climate model projections, um, it would be great if we could have sort of some canonical public downscaled climate model data sets. And there's been a couple efforts to do that, but um, I don't think any of them with the right level of resources to really sort of nail this. Because now we see every company, every organization that wants to do climate impacts work has to do their own downscaling. If I take a, a step back, I come back to Earth Movers. Um, I want to nerd out on some of the business model stuff for a little bit. Sure. We've talked about the more on the technical side. So you mentioned VC, uh, well, I said seed, uh, seed stage. So that's, that kind of also implies uh, VC backed. And I'd really be curious as to what nudged you to go raise capital, raise money, go down that route, not going you know, another option is bootstrapped. Uh, so why raise uh, some money? And then kind of how do you expect to make back some of that? Before diving into like, you know, VC funding and all that stuff, I'll sort of preface it by saying I'm very familiar with one way of funding projects, which is grants. So I've gotten tons of grants in my career from public sector funding agencies like um, the US NSF or NASA. Um, and also from private foundations like the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, uh, Sloan Foundation, I've probably gotten $15 million worth of grant funding in my scientific career, right? And I just say that because like all funding comes with some strings attached. <laughs> um, there, I don't think there's any such thing as like a sort of a neutral or pure, perfect source of funding, right? I think that that's a myth. And it's, it's just about what are the various trade-offs I think we could have pursued a lot more work on software and data infrastructure through grants. We could have, could have either stayed at the university or started a new thing that would be grant funded. The main problem I have with grant funding for this type of work is that it doesn't build in any feedback loop of accountability to your users. You know, what I really like about working on software and what I, you know, have loved about getting involved in open source and becoming an open source um, you know, developer and maintainer, uh, which I continue to do, by the way, I'm still a core developer of X-Ray and Czar, um, very active there. I love that user feedback, right? I love doing something, uh, you know, people use it, they give you feedback, you, you, you fix something, uh, they, 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 they say, oh, thanks, this worked, you know, this really helped my, me solve my problem. Oh, thank, you know, this software is awesome. Uh, or, you know, the other version of it, oh, this sucks. Like, why does this software not work right this way? And, you know, if you can actually fix that and come back, you know, in a short time scale and be like, yeah, thanks for finding our bug. Like, we fixed it now. The, this thing is 10 times faster. And, you know, that feedback loop is really satisfying. And it also drives, like, very satisfying personally for me. And it also drives really good improvements to the thing you're making, um, if you can get into that feedback loop. And so, in my experience with grant funding is, is that... you you're trying to, you, what you have to please is the person making the grant, right? And you have to then, what they want is a report that will make them feel that they they got, you know, good use out of the grant. And you can certainly tell that story with, by writing a report and getting statistics and stuff, but you can also just bullshit it and get a bunch of grants and and not really like solve any real problems for real people. and. For what I just knew very strongly when we were starting the company is like we want to solve real problems for real people and also not just in academia but in industry, this growing sort of climate tech industry. And the best way to measure like whether you're solving real problems for real people is like whether they will pay you for it, right? Um, particularly in, in business. So like we really wanted to solve to start a business that would just 
have this very direct feedback loop between the, the users and the customers and like our success as a business. Okay, so we're starting a, a, a for-profit business. That's what that that's called, right? And now there's two basic ways you can do that. Um, well, you can bootstrap or you can get investment or debt to start a company. Right now, as for bootstrapping, I think it sounds really cool. On the other hand, like you, you, you can't. You have to do project work, right? You have to do like what the the clients want. And we had a real vision for the, this thing we wanted to make make come into existence. You know, Array Lake, this new layer of of, of uh, infrastructure that we thought would help a lot of people go a lot faster. There's also a very much like a practical aspect to this. Like, I think bootstrapping means one thing when you're like a 21 year old who can you know stay on someone's couch and like eat noodles like both my co-founder and I are you know we're dads like we live in really expensive cities uh we um are not independently wealthy we don't have a bunch of previous startup exits that we can just like you know ride the cash from like we're coming straight out of academia without some sort of backstop of of independent wealth just from a practical point of view, just like starting a company and going all in and not earning any money was also like not on the table for us, right? What we realized is that what we wanted to do was very aligned with the type of business that venture capital wants to fund. Namely, we wanted to create a product that had broad value for a lot of different users. And we wanted to grow a company that could really transform how the world interacts with scientific data. That is a big ambition, and the ceiling of it is very high if it can be successful. We then, once we made this connection, we realized we're very comfortable and we're uh, with taking venture capital investment to start the business. And we we're lucky to find some great investors who really understood our vision of what we were trying to do, gave us a you know good deal on good terms that would allow us to get the capital to get the company off the ground. And I'm I'm really happy with how this this has turned out so far. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Appreciate the, uh, I like the, the comparison with the grant funding as well. I, this is maybe something I'm less familiar with and so is less top of mind. But yeah, I, I feel like those trade-offs make a lot of sense. And, and you know, what, what, what in neither case, like the end state of where we want to get is to be, have a sort of profitable, sustainable company yeah. that's a- accountable to the users. If we're successful, it's going to be co- because we're building something that people want, that has a lot of value, that you know, and and, and th- at that point, that the investors are not a big part of that. What we absolutely don't want to do is use venture funding to make some sort of land grab. You know, subsidize some unsustainable pricing, some unsustainable business model, just grow super large, and um, you know, uh, capture people somehow into our you know business model. You you can't get that kind of funding in twenty twenty three anyway. Like. There, VCs are not just like throwing money over the wall anymore. So we've taken like r- relatively small funding rounds um, uh, with very clear expectations of like creating a, a you know a, a solid business model out of this company. I think gone like uh, VC has changed a lot in the past two years, and some of the things that um, were happening, uh, I think, with these sort of unsustainable business models are going to be a thing of the past, and I think that's good. I think that's great context, and and I do agree with that. I think the needing to fund real projects, like there are definitely projects that need capital up front. And I like what you mentioned around you have this vision and you want to work on that rather than what the customer that's willing to pay right now wants. I feel like that's great context for deciding what how to fund a, a specific project. Absolutely, because, you know, I mean, you have to be a little bit, maybe the word is arrogant to like start a company yeah, in the sense yeah. that like you have to have some idea that like people might not know what they want to today. Like if you ask them, like if you ask people, you know, it's just like the classic, you know, if, if you ask like a, a farmer in the 1800s, like what they would want, they'd want like a better cow or something, right? Like they wouldn't imagine like a a tractor. I, I'm getting that analogy wrong, but like we we like to think that we have enough experience as practitioners to like put out an opinion about like what the next stage could look like. Um, but you need and, some time to make that happen. Money, absolutely. Basically. And mm-hmm. we have c- done our best to confront c- 
customers, real customers with that as early as possible. And so we've gotten some validation that this is, yes, this is useful. Like we have paying customers who are excited about the product. We've also gotten plenty of information about, you know, how we should be tweaking this and what other layers we need in order to really solve people's problems. Um, and so we definitely prioritize sort of launching early and getting yeah. into that iteration with users as quickly as possible. I feel like this is a, a nice place to, to start rounding the conversation off. I just like I like asking the, the same question when I start, I like rounding it off the same way, asking people for a book and a podcast recommendation. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The, the first one is a, a lot of these still travel through word of mouth, uh, books and, and podcasts are still like I hear about them from other people recommending them and I like hearing about new stuff. And the other is I just think it's a nice way to learn about what people are interested in. So if there's anything that you've read and or listened to recently uh, or not that you think is uh you know could be interesting for people to hear about, it doesn't have to be about anything that we talked about. Um so you know fiction is great. Um uh, just anything you thought was interesting and and worth uh reading or listening to. Okay, this is a great question. The podcast one, I'll, I'll give you one recommendation, and it's it's very it's very nerdy, it's very technical. Um, Let's I, do I it. listen I listen to this podcast called the the Data Stack Show. It's a technology podcast, and it's it's really about what you would broadly probably call the modern data stack, like cl cloud data technology, data warehouses. ETL, you know, not not at all geospatial or sp specific in any way. But for me, as I've been like moving into this field, it's been really, really great to like, see all of these different types of companies, all these different categories of products, all of these different business models that are um, be, that are that exist in this much bigger, broader space of general like cloud data analytics. Because it gives a lot of like, there's a lot of things out there. There's like a lot of ideas out there. And, and and like, in general, we use very, like, a very small fraction of like, these, these types of systems in the geospatial world. And like, I think we should probably use a lot more like, it's, it's, it's like, it, you could, now, th there's certainly plenty of bl bloat out there in the modern data stack and plenty of like, companies that probably, you know, won't, won't survive or, or, or are sort of, um, but, but on the other hand, like, it's really amazing, like the choices that, you know, customers have about like how they want to, you know, set up their data architecture and um, the amazing quality of all of these different services and products that for working with data in, in the cloud. So like um, listening to the show has been really important for me to like, just kind of like understand the, the sort of landscape of what's what's possible and it's it's given me a lot of a lot of good ideas so that that's the podcast have you ever come across it before i think i've seen it here and there uh, i probably haven't listened to that one in in a little while but i like these uh you know as might be a little bit obvious these very nerdy podcasts i find them very interesting yeah this one is definitely for like the data engineers for the system architects and also for for the people thinking about um, starting companies, because there's a lot of talk, not just about the technology, but about the business model and the, the founder's journey and stuff like that. I, I feel like there's a lot of uh, echo to what you mentioned earlier about coming from climate science into geospatial and like learning about projections and things like that. At the end of the day, modern geospatial stuff is a lot about computer science as well. And so like you can just keep doing these things where you're like, oh, I actually don't know that much about how this thing works. And there's a lot of valuable insights to be gained from seeing how a slightly tangent field deals with some not quite the same, but very similar problems and found solutions that one might not have thought about. So I, I find a lot of value in trying to understand things like that. Exactly. And like my... Our general like hypothesis is that people are building too much custom stuff, like right. Um, and yeah. and it's not to say that the custom stuff they're building is bad or or like you know it's it's very good custom stuff. But like having gotten a view into many different companies, we see like the same type of teams of engineers like building the same type of solutions over and over. And there's just like a fundamental inefficiency there. Um, anyway, not to get back into the product discussion, but like, um, you know, uh, and then, yeah, as for the book, you know, I, I read, I've, I, I've had to teach myself how to be like a startup founder. So like, 
I've had to read a lot of startup books, you know, like there's a whole library of, of what they are. One of the ones that introduced, you know, influenced me a lot, and we talked about some of this stuff today, was this book called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And it's really about what we've been talking about today is how, how do you, it's called mar marketing and selling d disruptive products to mainstream customers, right? This, you know, this tension between, you know, wanting to innovate and do something new, but then recognizing that like there's a fundamental reluctance within the, the market to adopt things that are strange and unfamiliar. And how do you, how do you navigate that? And we are, as a company, we have not crossed the chasm. <laughs> like we're still with the early adopters, but we have to cross it um, if we want to be successful. Um, and so these are the sort of things that I think of, think about. Instead, again, very, you know, very inside baseball type uh, <laughs> books. But um, uh, I, I, I suspect many uh, of the listeners with the entrepreneurial interest will know this book. This is also why I ask. <laughs> But cool. Thanks, Ryan. This was really cool. Thanks for your time. This was a great conversation. I'm glad we uh, we finally got to do it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this conversation. I wanted to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this video, but also all the people who financially support me on Patreon. If everything goes well, these conversations should feel and sound seamless and effortless, but there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes. I try to research and prepare these as much as I can to know who these people are and what makes them interesting and what would lead to a good conversation. I'm incredibly thankful to all the people who support my work on Patreon, meaning I can do a little bit more of it. This podcast started out as a way to learn more about the people in this industry, but I've also started making educational content on another YouTube channel that I'll put a link to in the show notes. And I want to make more content explaining how satellite images and maps work to a broader audience, as well as continuing to research the guests for these podcast episodes. So if you value the work that I do, I'd like to ask you to please consider supporting my work on Patreon. There's also some behind the scenes of how this podcast is done and some of the work that I'm doing for these educational videos if you want to learn more about how I do all of this. Either way, thank you so much for all of your attention and your time. I really appreciate it, and I hope you get value from these conversations. Thanks.